Father, we thank you for giving us voices to sing, to sing praises to you. There's nothing uh, greater than using our voice uh, to praise you and to worship you. And God, as we open your word now, this is an act of worship as well. I pray it would be an act of worship for me as I open your scriptures, that it would be an act of worship for all of us as we submit ourselves under your word and that you would lead us and guide us by your spirit to worship, to repentance, to faith, and to hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2009 uh, Duke Medical Study revealed that babies can actually detect rhythm in their mother's womb. The researchers concluded that detection of a beat is a fundamental human trait. Those of us who believe that God created us would interpret this study to mean that he made us to feel, and of course, presumably to make, rhythm. This is why music is present in every culture. It's intrinsic to our humanity. Music is a key way that we feel and express our deepest emotions. And we see this from an early age as young children sing and make music and dance without, with great freedom, without a care in the world, without wondering whether or not they're doing it right. In fact, just yesterday morning, my girls and I were having a full-on dance party in our kitchen. So why is it then that so many adults feel so self-conscious about their own singing or dancing? Well, at some point in development, many children face some type of resistance or judgment that makes them pull back and become musically insecure. Something called voice shame, personal embarrassment about your own ability to sing, sets in. It's a real thing. And in some cultures, this will happen with dancing too. A one Houston dance teacher described new students as, and I quote, so tense and full of fear of embarrassment or being ridiculed that any attempt at movement seemed to await some sort of horrible repercussions. Some of you can probably relate to that. Well, this fear of failure across musical disciplines keeps people from feeling the same freedom to sing or dance that they once enjoyed as a child. And I believe that some of these musical hesitations or cultural differences can make their way into this room even when we gather to worship God each Sunday. Now, worship is obviously far more than just music. Every aspect of our Sunday service is an act of worship. In fact, every aspect of life is an opportunity to worship. In Romans 12, Paul calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So even though worship does not equal music, music is a very important aspect of worship, especially our weekly corporate gathering together as a church family. It is through music that we express the full range of human emotion and our ultimate hope in Christ. And if any of us has experienced voice shame or dance shame or even clap shame, we will likely bring it into this room when we gather for worship. And when you add that some Christians were raised believing that corporate worship should be austere and serious and reverent and respectful, while others believing that it should be 
always expressive and exuberant and joyful. It's easy to understand and see why worship wars have plagued the church and our country for the past century. What should our posture be together as we worship God? How should we approach God in praise? We're going to try to answer these questions this morning. In our passage, uh, 2 Samuel 6, we encounter the newly crowned king of a unified Israel, King David. And he's working toward restoring Israel's sacrificial system of worship to the people. And as he does, we find him along with the people of Israel, singing and dancing and shouting and blowing horns with joy before the Lord. But we also receive a reminder that our approach of God and all his holiness must not violate his word. And the theme of our passage serves as our central application. Worship our holy God with reverent joy. And there are three movements in this chapter as we consider the heart, posture, and actions of three different people, Uzzah, David, and McCall. And my hope and prayer this week has been that as we consider this passage together, that we would be able to feel full freedom in our worship of the Lord, to give all that we are to our Creator and our Redeemer in our private and family worship and also here in our corporate worship of Him as a church family. So let's start together by looking at verse 1 as we're confronted with Uzzah's careless error. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, First and Second Samuel were originally written as one book. They were eventually separated because of the size of scrolls into two. And in the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of God is mentioned 32 times, 32 times in just the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. But since we began this sermon series all the way back in September, we have yet to encounter the Ark even once. And that's largely because of Saul's failed spiritual leadership as king. There's only one record of him dealing with the Ark after being crowned, and that's all the way back in 1 Samuel 14. But the ark was central to Israel's worship of God. It was a wooden chest covered in gold that housed the tablets of the Ten Commandments, among other things. Kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple, the ark served as the visible sign of the Lord's holy presence. And two angelic figures called cherubim adorned the lid, also called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was like God's earthly throne where he would meet with his people. And God instructs Moses in Exodus 25, verse 22, he says about this ark, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark symbolized God's reign over his people with the language of throne, God's reconciliation with his people, the mercy seat, and his revelation to his people through the presence of the Ten Commandments and the place where God would speak to Moses and Aaron and eventually the high priests of Israel. But if the ark was so important to Israel, so central to their worship of the one true God, where has it been the past 21 chapters spanning decades of history? Well, it's been in the town of Kiriath-Jerim, 
First uh, Samuel opens with the prophet Samuel's birth, calling, and then ministry as a young boy alongside the priest named Eli at Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the ark had been permanently located for centuries, about 370 years or so. And in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines, the Israel's chief enemies during this era, captured the ark during a battle and they took it back to their land. It moved from city to city in the Philistine territory for seven months. But wherever they kept the ark, the Philistines were struck with tumors as God's judgment for stealing this very important article. And so the Philistines finally relented and they sent the ark back to Israel on a cart drawn by two cows. And it eventually ended up in the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. And as the Israelites received this cart carrying the ark, the people celebrated its return. But as they did, they disobeyed God's law regarding it. This is from 1 Samuel 6 verse 19. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's a good question to ask. And to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. All their people get struck down, and they're saying, Why don't you take the ark? And the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That 20 years is referring to the 20 years before the next events in 1 Samuel. All in all, the ark was in Kiriath Jerim for nearly 70 years, separated from the tabernacle where it belonged and separated from God's people who used it for their worship. Now, part of Israel's weakness during this long period, largely under Saul's reign of, as king, was the neglect of proper worship that was stipulated clearly by the law. But now that David has become king over a unified Israel, he's working to change that. And so he takes a large contingent of Israelites, 30,000 men, to Baal Judah, which is just another name we learn in 1 Chronicles for Kiriath-Jerim. And he does this to bring the ark back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem. Look at verse 3 of our, of our passage, 2 Samuel 6. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now David has been living in, in Hebron for seven years, but now he's looking to make Jerusalem into a royal city called the City of David, Israel's new administrative capital and religious center. And the ark is a crucial piece of the nation's spiritual life. And so returning it to God's people is essential. Few, if any, of the Israelites traveling with David and Abinadab's sons would have even seen the ark in their lifetime. So it's not surprising that a celebration breaks out during the nine-mile journey from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. So just think of, in our time, the parades that accompany a championship team bringing the trophy home trophy back home to its city. Uh, this is the picture that we have with far greater spiritual implications, although sports is spiritual in nature. <laughs> this is a picture we have as thousands of people rejoice in worship in the ark's return. 
in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now these verses are so hard to read. Uh, I've always felt badly for Uzzah. Uh, After all, he was one of Abinadab's sons. His family had housed and cared for the ark faithfully for decades. And it's clear that his motivations are good. When the oxen pulling the cart stumble, he's simply trying to keep the ark from falling onto the ground. But the Lord had been very clear in his instructions to build the tabernacle and the ark in the book of Exodus. First, the Kohathites, a division of the Levites, were supposed to carry the ark by poles. The cart was the method that the Philistines had used to send the ark back to Israel. It tells us here they built a new cart, but it was not the proper method for God's people. There would have been no danger of the ark falling if they had carried it in accordance with God's law, and that is by carrying it by poles. And regardless of the carrying method, the Lord had also been clear about never touching the ark. In Numbers 4.15, he gives this commandment. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So no one was supposed to approach Yahweh's throne in the Holy of Holies except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And no one, no one was supposed to touch the ark, not even the Kohathites who carried it through the wilderness on poles. And Uzzah violated the law, and the consequence was just as God had promised, and that was his life. The Lord had broken out against the Philistines in verse 20 of the previous chapter, and he breaks out here against Uzzah because of his careless error. And God's message is unequivocally clear. He is real. He is holy. And he must not be trifled with. His people were not free to approach him carelessly. Yes, they would be able to worship him properly as a nation once again with the ark in its proper place, but on his terms and not their own. And Uzzah's immediate judgment was a stark warning to that end. Now, with the coming of Christ and his inauguration of a glorious new covenant in his blood, we can be immeasurably grateful that the law of Moses is no longer binding for us. And yet, we must not think in any way that God is somehow changed in nature. He is no less holy today than he was in the historical events of these verses. And his instructions related to how we worship him may have changed But even in the early church, we see God's immediate judgment on people who fail to take his holiness seriously. Take, for example, Ananias and Sapphira. When they lie to the apostles, they both drop dead with falsehood still lingering on their lips. Or consider Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. He's telling them to be careful, to acknowledge his holiness. God is holy, and therefore we must approach him on his terms and not on ours. He's given us his revelation. He's outlined principles for what our worship should look like. And while we have great freedom, wonderful freedom under the new covenant, which we've sung about even this morning, we're wise to approach him for who he is, and that is our holy God. And the heaviness of his holiness must be central to our worship. And as David witnesses Uzzah's judgment, he has a progression of reactions leading ultimately to reverent joy. But that's certainly not his first response. Look at, his, look at what, how he responds initially in verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Paris Uzzah to this day. Now David's response of Uh, progression of responses starts with anger toward God, which is understandable. That might even be how we feel about this. It's it's an understandable response from our limited human perspective. We, We struggle to comprehend why the Lord would strike down Uzzah, but that's because we fail to grasp the seriousness of his holiness sometimes. But David's anger quickly gives way to fear, fear marked by carefulness. Verse 9 And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's undoubtedly wondering, was I I not supposed to move the ark? Now, it's curious that David undertakes this process without first consulting the Lord. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 13 is clear uh, that he consulted his commanders, but there's no mention of inquiring of the Lord. Uh, That's not to suggest that moving the ark was wrong. This is a, a good thing that he's doing. But the lack of a word from the Lord plus the Lord's judgment on Uzzah is likely raising reasonable doubt in David's mind. David is worried about making a similar mistake. He's fearful, but it seems to be a holy fear. Now, historically, Christians have considered two different types of fear, servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is the fear of a servant. It only considers one aspect of God's, pow- God's character, and that is his power as sovereign creator. This type of fear leads to utter terror before God. It pushes people away from him and not toward him. This is the fear of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they've sinned against God. Servile fear is the proper response of those who are in rebellion to God. But the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John Piper puts it this way, God doesn't want us to cower like slaves in the household where the children should be enjoying sweet peace in their father's care. Perhaps you're here today and you live in the fear of God's judgment. I pray that your fear this morning, even through God's powerful word, would be transformed into filial fear. This is the right and proper fear of children toward their loving father. This is the appropriate response of those who trust in God. Filial fear sees God as majestic and transcendent, as the high and holy one, and also 
as the loving God who saves us. And while servile fear causes a person to draw back from God, filial fear causes a person to draw near to God while still acknowledging his awesome holiness. So we may all see God as the one who will judge us and as the one, the only one, who can save us. This is David's response in this passage. Proper reverence, a holy fear of God as he considers carefully what to do with the ark in verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Adam, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Adam, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Adam and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Adam and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Adam to the city of David with rejoicing. And when word reaches uh, David that the Lord has blessed Obed-Adam's household while they've housed the ark, the king begins to gain confidence that he can actually move the ark. But this time, he chooses to do it the right way in obedience to God's law. Notice verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. The ark is no longer on a cart. Men are now carrying it properly by poles. And David proceeds with carefulness. And after the bearers take just six steps, he offers a sacrifice of thanks that they're still alive. It's unclear whether this is after just the first six steps or every six steps along the journey. But either way, we see David's sincere reverence toward God. We see his understanding that God is holy. And we also see his joy. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is a jubilant celebration of reverent joy. The people are, of God are carrying the ark of the covenant. This is the very symbol of God's holy presence, and they're proceeding in obedience to God's holy law and carrying the ark according to his holy standards and very aware of his awesome power to judge should they rebel. Uzzah was their reminder. But along with their reverence, we also have here an awesome picture of unbridled joy. Singing and dancing and shouting are the natural responses of a happy people as the ark of God is restored to the people of God. David is wearing a linen ephod. This is a priestly garment that is made for worship. And 1 Chronicles 15 tells us that he's also wearing a robe of fine linen along with the ephod. This is the king and his reverent joy is a great example for us. But not everyone thought so at the time. In verse 16, we see the response of Michal, David's first wife, as she looks on. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed each to his house. Um, 
The first thing that we need to notice here is how the author refers to Michal. She is the daughter of Saul. Three times she's referred to this way, and this emphasizes the fact that she is a part of a kingly line that is on the verge of being cut off altogether. Her father is dead, all her brothers are now dead, and she's the last hope to produce an heir from Saul's line. And as the ark of the Lord comes into Jerusalem with David leaping and dancing and the people singing and shouting and celebrating, her response is scorn, contempt, hatred. She once loved David. We learned that in 1 Samuel 18, but now she despises him. She once lowered David out of a window to save him from her own father in 1 Samuel 19, but now she looks down from her window at David with nothing but disgust. When the ark had been stolen by the Philistines decades prior, uh, there was a great mourning following its departure. Uh, Eli's grandson was born the day that it was stolen, and he was named Ichabod, or Ichavod, without glory. The glory of the Lord had departed, and grief was an appropriate response of his people. But now the glory of the Lord was returning, and yet McCall looks down in judgment on David and the people as they celebrate. The moment, the, the magnificence of the moment escapes her altogether. But it's not difficult to empathize with McCall. Her father Saul had broken her marriage to David and married her off to another man who seemed to love her. But after David was crowned king, he reclaims her as his rightful wife. But she's no longer David's one and only wife as she once was. As God had intended from the beginning, she now joins a house full of wives and concubines. So in some way, her scorn is understandable. And yet, and I want to say this very carefully, regardless of our own personal history, regardless of how we may have been mistreated, we're each responsible, every single one of us, of our own hearts toward the Lord. We can filter God's character through the circumstances of our lives, or we can filter our circumstances through God's good and holy character. And tragically, McCall chooses the former and not the latter. And David sets up a new tabernacle for the ark, a new place of worship for God's people, and for the first time, in a long time, he offers sacrifices to the Lord before blessing the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and sending them home with gifts of food. And he then turns to his own home to offer a blessing. But rather than being welcomed, he's met with McCall's tragic scorn in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but McCall, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to McCall, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. Now, McCall intimates through sarcasm that David had ulterior motives as he danced in the linen ephod that he was being suggestive in front of those women that were present, that he was taking advantage of them. And the words she uses suggest that the glory of the Lord is still absent. 
Again, it's a fair accusation in light of his relationship with a growing number of women, a group that will only continue to, to increase. But David responds by making it clear that he's had a singular focus, and that is to please the Lord. The ESV translates David's words as follows, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. I like the NIV's rendering, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. His dancing may have seemed undignified. The word here is to make little of. He may have made a little of himself through his worship of the Lord and in so doing embarrassed her in the process. But his purpose was not to make little of himself, but to make much of God. And he believes the ultimate response of those that have witnessed what has transpired will be his honor and not his shame. When we worship God in total freedom, what might seem to others as a lack of dignity, it can still be reverent as long as we're worshiping him within the boundaries of his word. Our passage closes with verse 23, another verse that's hard to read. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It's impossible to know whether this is a direct judgment on McCall for her scorn of David's worship, but it seems more likely to suggest that McCall's clear contempt for David prevented them from ever sharing the marriage bed again. It also emphasizes the fact that Saul's line has been completely cut off. She would produce no heir for the now deceased king. The bookends of this passage in Uzzah and McCall provide examples of what not to do in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of his glory, in the presence of his holiness. But in the middle, David and the people of Israel model the theme of our passage and the main application of our passage, and that is to worship our holy God with reverent joy. And there are four parts to this application that are right in the sentence. The first is worship. When we see or hear this word, we might immediately think of a gathering like this one, a service where people come together to sing hymns or pray or listen to a sermon. And certainly that is what we do each week on the Lord's Day in this room that we call a worship center. But worship is not limited to Sunday or to corporate settings. First and foremost, worship is an identity, not an activity. It's an orientation. To worship is to ascribe worth to treasure, to treat with ultimate value. Each of us is a worshiper. And everything that we do every single day is rooted in worship. Everything we think and say and desire and do is shaped by what or who we worship, our greatest treasures. God made each of us for worship, and specifically he made us to worship him. In fact, as our holy God, the one true God, he's the only one who can actually bear the weight of our worship. But our worship is often misplaced. Because of the fall, because of our sin, our default is to worship what God has created instead of worshiping him as creator. And we call these unsuitable objects of our worship idols. We might worship our relationships or our responsibilities or success or control, or efficiency, or order, or respect, or stability, or security, or comfort, or pleasure. 
Each of these things and others like them tend to compete with God in our hearts as ultimate objects of worship, often without our even noticing. And then when things don't go our way, when these idols let us down, as they always do, just as like we see in the life of McCall, we can become bitter and angry and despondent and even violent. Such responses indicate that we have a worship problem. And if we persist in false worship, we can be sure that we will face God's ultimate judgment for our sin, his righteous anger toward our rejection of him as God, our refusal to accept the very purpose for which he made us, which is to worship him. Listen to Hebrews 9, starting with verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that is referring to the holy places of the tabernacle and eventually the temple, which are copies of the true things, but he's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would not have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Although God is just in this judgment, he is also loving and gracious and merciful, and he will save those who eagerly await him. He sent his son Jesus to put away our sin, to serve as the only mediator between us, those who reject his law, who ignore what he's told us, us false worshipers, us despisers of him. He's the only mediator between us and a perfect and holy and righteous and awesome God. And even though Jesus had lived a perfectly righteous life with no sin, he endured through his death on the cross, the storm of God's wrath against our sin, the punishment we deserved so that he might be the rock of ages cleft for us, a shelter, a hiding place for all who trust in him. And when we do, we no longer need to approach God with servile fear, but with proper fear, with the fear that children have of their good, good father. Our worship of him should be reverent. Later in Hebrews, the author gives this command to Christians. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Even with Christ as our mediator, we still must acknowledge God's majestic holiness as we approach him. But reverence does not mean that our worship of God, whether by ourselves or with our families or in our corporate gatherings, must be dull, austere, cold, somber, dour, emotionless, or just plain boring. Our worship should be marked by reverence, but it should also be filled with joy. This is what we see in David and Israel in our passage this morning. This is what we find in the psalm that we read this morning. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
And this shouldn't be some sort of superficial, manufactured, happy, clappy display, but deep, genuine, reverent joy. And the more we know and understand who God is and just how much he loves us, the more we'll be able to look beyond our circumstances, no matter how difficult or awful they might be, and offer God genuine sacrifices of praise. The more we understand what amazing grace he has bestowed to save us from the depths of our wretched sin, the more we'll be able to give all of who we are to worship him at home and in our personal worship and here together in this room. Because, folks, we're good news people. That means we're people of joy. Joy is not happiness. It's not the same thing. Joy is a deep-seated contentment in God and his saving work on our behalf. And sometimes our joy will be expressed with great excitement and exuberance, and other times it might be more muted or subdued. But undoubtedly, we will gather here each week coming from different emotional places, but our goal together is reverent joy, moving from whatever highs or lows we might be facing outside of this room towards sincere, heartfelt praise of the Lord. And when our worship is musical in nature, sing out, dance if you want to, clap on the beat or not on the beat. But whatever you do, whatever you do, feel freedom to offer all of yourself as we worship our holy God together with reverent joy. Let's pray. God, we have so much to celebrate. There is so much that we have to thank you for and to worship you for, simply just for who you are. You're the creator. You're our redeemer. You've sent your son Jesus to die for us out of a great show of your precious love for us. And so we want to come before you, recognizing that you're holy and also come with great joy in our hearts. And so I pray as we sing together now, not just this song, God, I pray that this word would transform us, that we would excel still more in this area. I'm so thankful for the voices that ring out in this room people who've been saved from wretched sin and yet are calling out in joy and thanking you for what you've done. And I pray that we would do that now in this song. And I pray we would do that going forward as a church family. Spirit, fill us, fill this room so that we might honor you and worship you in all that you're worth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.